Good afternoon. My name is Callie Yonker, and I'm a senior education student at Calvin. I would like to welcome you to the January series, 2011, of Calvin College. Please take a moment to silence your cell phones. Please, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for this wonderful place of Calvin College, where we are able to be educated about your world and how we may impact it. Thank you for the January series and for the opportunity to hear from many people who are impacting your world. Forgive us, as we often forget that schooling is a privilege and that good schools are still not available to all. We thank you for the life and work of Mr. George. Please bless Mr. George as he shares with us now his experiences and his vision for education, and allow us to have discerning minds and ears to be able to learn from his words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now, Professor Rooks, Dean of Teacher Education at Calvin, will introduce our guest. An important part of the story of Calvin College is a deep and abiding interest in teachers, education, and schooling. And a critical part of the story of our nation is the establishment of free public education for all children. Public education is one of our most democratic and accessible institutions and it plays a vital role in the health of our democracy. Calls for reform of public education have been nearly constant throughout its existence. But right now, we're in a period of unprecedented, intense, and sustained debate over the future and direction of public education. In the midst of this debate, Sajan George works with large urban public schools, helping them address the extreme challenges they face. His Christian convictions call him to the task of ensuring that we have schools that serve all of the children in our nation. The focus and passion of his work is to realize the dream that all students, regardless of background, can learn and succeed in American society. Mr. George works alongside the nation's governing and education officials, restructuring some of the largest K-12 schooling systems in the country, including those in New York City, Washington, D.C., as well as the New Orleans Parish Schools in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. He's currently leading a team in Detroit to manage the city's K-12 Special Education Department. Mr. George uh, was born and raised in Canada, just across the border from us in London, Ontario. He now resides in Atlanta with his wife and three young children. Calvin College is grateful to the Calvin Academy for Lifelong Learning for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome Sajan George. Well, thank you, and good afternoon. I have a confession to make, and that confession is um, I'm a little embarrassed about my title. See, if I was in your shoes, anytime I hear anybody talk about the future of anything, I say to myself, well, if that's really the future, then why is he here trying to convince us of that? He should just go live it. <laughs> and so there's perhaps a sense of disbelief or healthy skepticism around uh, whether this really is the future of education. And so let me caveat this by simply saying, this is what I believe is my vision for the future of education. And the only credibility that I will lend to that statement is the following. I believe it so strongly that I'm actually willing to um, pivot my current career path with my current employer and go pursue this vision at the conclusion of this month. Um, that's how strongly I feel this. And it's ironic that I'm here on the campus of Calvin College talking to you about this because college is probably the first place that most of us formally began to wrestle with the question, what should I do with my life? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And for some of you, that's um, particularly you students, it's a, an emotional question, it's an intellectual question, it's an economic question, and it's definitely a spiritual question. But regardless of what lens you look through at that question, which you, well, at least what I didn't realize when I was in college many years ago, but appreciated much later, much later is, it's a question that you may first formally engage in college, but it's a question that never leaves you. You constantly revisit it in your life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? What am I to do with the gifts and abilities that God has given me? 
When I graduated from college, I thought was, that was to do turnarounds, to help companies, corporations that were in crisis, help turn them around. And so that's what I did. Um, really, for the first nine years of my, my career, I spent time inside companies that were in trouble, in crisis, helping turn and restructure and turn them around. Until 2003 in St. Louis, we got this most amazing opportunity to apply that turnaround methodology to a public school district. St. Louis Public Schools, K through 12. It was interesting. St. Louis, um, like many urban public school districts, is, a, is was the first, fourth largest employer in the city of St. Louis. A $400 million operating budget, clearly critical to the city's future. Uh, but like so many of our urban school systems, it was failing, failing at students. You had kids that were graduating high school that couldn't apply to college or, or get, a, get a job because they couldn't read the application. The mayor of St. Louis decided to do something. He, um, there were four seats on a seven-member publicly elected board that came up for election. He backed four candidates, two African-American and two white. <clears throat> they ran together on a platform of change. In running, they started um, doing these listening sessions, inviting parents and teachers and principals to come and to listen. What's wrong with our school system? Let us hear your thoughts and opinions. What they felt was the system was fundamentally broken, that the foundation on which the school district rested was broken. And so they thought, well, maybe we can find kind of a retired CEO in the St. Louis community, someone that can come in with perhaps free himself or herself from the vestige thinking of the old bureaucracy and come in with a totally fresh perspective. Well, they found some retired CEOs, but none of them who could commit full-time, 20 hours a week, another one said 30, but it really was going to be a full-time job. In addition, during that period of listening, they realized that the system was broken in so many areas. HR, they couldn't get adequate teachers and how to evaluate teachers. The union contract expired two years ago and no new one. The facilities were in total disrepair. Finances, we couldn't figure out how much was being funded by schools and by student and where the money was going. Operations, the food in the cafeteria was lousy. Security was abysmal or non-existent. Violence was everywhere. The system went on and on and on. What they realized is they needed a team of people. Again, they went back to the business community, and there's some major corporations that are headquartered in St. Louis, Fortune 1000 companies, and said, could you give us someone in operations? Could you give us someone in marketing, someone in HR, IT, finance? And they said, sure, what do you want them to do? And they said, we want them to try to turn around the St. Louis Public School District. These corporations said, are you crazy? Do you know how political that would be? And they backed away. They said, no, that's way too political. We can't have our corporate name associated with that. And about that time, one of those four members of the school board said, you know, I sit on a corporate board, and when corporations get into trouble, they, they hire these turnaround firms. They come in like with, as a SWAT team, diagnose the problem, implement the solution. They actually take management positions in the organization they're trying to turn around, CFO, COO, CEO, uh, CEO and help turn it around. And then they leave. So the long story short, we, uh, we, we were asked, and I became the interim CFO of St. Louis Public Schools, not knowing anything about how to run a school district, but quickly learning. We were able to take out $90 million out of a $400 million operating budget without laying off a single teacher. But I'm not here to talk about St. Louis. From St. Louis, we went to New Orleans, and we were actually there two months before Katrina hit, not knowing Katrina was going to hit. Katrina leveled the city, and we went from a turnaround to a startup, but we were able to rethink what a school system could be from the ground up. We, able to, we created a system of choice where parents could choose any school that they wanted their kid to go, and the money would follow the child. If the school didn't, didn't do a good job of educating that child, the child could simply move, and the money would follow with them. And as, a, as a result, today New Orleans has uh, 60% of their schools are charter and 40% are non, and it's completely choice, completely competitive. But I'm not here to talk about New Orleans either. From there, we went to New York City, the largest system in the, in the country, 1.1 million children, and took a top-down system, working with Joel Klein, Chancellor, Michael Bloomberg, Mayor, and created a bottoms-up system where schools would be at the top of the organization. We'd empower principals with decision-making authority around curriculum and around, the, around um, what approach, pedagogical approach they wanted to do. In exchange, every principal signed a performance contract saying that they would ensure that their students would perform. At the end of our work, New York won the most improved school district in the country. But I'm not here to talk about New York. And I'm not here to talk about the work that we did in D.C. with Michelle Rhee and Mayor Fenty. And I'm not here to talk about the work we're currently doing in Detroit. And there's a reason why. 
It's a good thing this thing's free because some of you might want your money back right now. Uh, no, there's no February series as I, as I realized. The reason why is because I had to pause and I paused last year in the course of my career and this is important. I had to pause and say, is the work that I'm doing sustainable and scalable? I think all of us at some point in our life, this is the hardest thing to do in the midst of success, in the midst of significance, to stop and to say, am I doing the greatest good for the common good? Am I using my abilities and skills and experiences to the best of my ability to the greatest need where God would have me? It's, I say it's hard to do that because no one around you will stop you. If you're successful, if you're doing things that have high profile, no one's going to cause you to pause. But I pause because in the work that I've done and even in the cities that I've just listed, the sustainability really rested on the political will of a few individuals. And even where it is sustaining, like in a city like, say, New York, how do you scale that? How do you find mayors like that? How do you find chancellors like that? How do you find leaders across the country? Public education is not a a niche or a cottage industry. It's the very foundation of our democracy. And so what I realized was I needed to spend the rest of my career on something that I felt if I was going to work in something as important as public education, I needed to spend my career on a solution that was both sustainable and scalable. And so I began this journey. And the journey started with this single question. You see, when you're trying to turn around anything, a school, a company, an organization, an entire public education system, you start with the question of, what is the historical greatness of this company or this organization or this institution? What made our public education system great? Because you see, companies, organizations, institutions that start out lousy and are always lousy don't need to turn around. They just need to die a natural death. But institutions and companies that were once great, you have to, those are the ones that are, are potential candidates for turnarounds. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, is there anything really great about our public education system? You, you read the news today and, and you hear about dropout rates and achievement gaps and totally incompetent uh, adults trying to affect children's outcomes. And what I'd say is that there is. Our system of education designed in in the beginning of the last century, classroom picture, 1920s, grouped kids by age and had a teacher teaching those those children through a printed curriculum, moving them through the same pace. And the system was actually great because it scaled around our country. And I think it was great for three reasons. There were three tenets that built this education system of ours that we have in this country that made it great. The first tenant is it was publicly funded. And the source of that funding wasn't income taxes, it was property taxes. Think of the genius of that. Income taxes would move as people would move, right, from location to location. Property taxes would stay fixed on the land. So what happened? People, communities would form, again, turn of the last century. As those communities formed, they would tax their land, they would use that land to build schools, and they would send their kids to schools. These strong Schools would in turn reinforce strong communities. Strong communities would in turn reinforce strong schools. You have this virtuous loop. You see that almost 100 years later today, still in effect. If you go to buy or sell your home today, what's one of the number one determinants of its value? The quality of your local school. Families clamor to get into neighborhoods that have a good public school. Families that don't even have children want to get into those neighborhoods because they know the appreciation value that that has on their land. So the first great tenet of our public education system to understand is that it was publicly funded. The second great tenet, I think, of our education system is it was publicly provided. You see, from the very beginning, America said all kids are going to go to school, boys and girls, regardless of aptitude. At the time when we designed the system, our counterparts in England and Germany made fun of us. They said, America, what are you doing? Why are you wasting all this money and trying to educate everybody? We screen our young boys, and those that show aptitude, we put them on to high school or further education. America said, no, education is not a privilege for the privileged. It's an enabler for all to become privileged. And I would argue that this concept that every life has value 
And that value needs to be developed as a Judeo-Christian concept. It's a concept that we, that public education has exported to the rest of the world. Today, countries like China and India, they educate their children, their, their girls without question. They educate their children uh, to the highest levels possible, publicly funded. That was not always the case. In fact, I would argue that this notion that every life has value, the channel, the cultural channel of public education has done a better job of exporting that value and that viewpoint better than any other channel of our society, including the church. Our world needs an encore. So the first tenant, publicly funded. Second great tenant, publicly provided. The third great tenant is that a separation of church and state. We designed a public secular system of education. Now maybe you may think it's odd that I'm here at Calvin College saying, well, why, why would that be a great tenant? We have to understand at the turn of the last century, in those early 1900s, America was forming as a country of immigrants. People were coming to our shores with their own set of values and cultures and mores and traditions and values from their home country. And as they came to our shores, it was important to create a system of education for the next generation so that the children of America, those first, the children, the descendants of those first immigrants, would develop a common identity, a common heritage, a common understanding of our Constitution and our flag and the 4th of July. And we see that still in effect today. We are a multicultural country, no doubt. But you compare us to other multicultural countries, including our neighbors to the north, and what you see in America, what you don't see so much in other countries, is a deep sense of American patriotism, a sense of loyalty to your home country. So many other countries identify, the, the citizens of that country, identify them first from their home ancestral country and second as their country of residence. Here in America, we identify first as Americans. So look what happens when those three great tenets come together. This is a graph across the last century that shows the top line, the red line, is the high school enrollment rate. And the green line is the high school graduation rate um, countrywide. Look what starts to happen in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s as these three tenets start to come together. Those of you that study social statistics and social graphs will we'll realize that this kind of upward spike is incredibly rare. No other country has this kind of graph for their high school enrollment during that period of time. What makes that even more amazing is that there was no federal mandate to do this. There was no edict. This was local communities, north, south, east, west, rural, urban, coming together, taxing themselves creating high schools and sending all of their kids to those high schools on their own initiative. A true grassroots movement that scaled public education across this country. So if that's the greatness of our system, we come to the next point in, in trying to develop and design a turnaround. First is, what, was, what made our system great? The second is, okay, if that's the greatness, what's wrong with this system? I'll, I'll tell you this, from my turnaround experiences, you can answer this question from many perspectives. And you see that. When, when GM went into bankruptcy, you heard opinions from shareholders of what's wrong with the company, from analysts, from vendors, from suppliers, from employees, from the public, from news cable shows. But if you're going to design a turnaround, a turnaround that's, that has a chance of really being successful, there's really only one perspective that you have to get absolutely right. If you don't get this perspective right, your turnaround is not going to be successful. And that's the perspective of a customer. If I have to answer this question, then I have to answer it from the perspective of the customer. And who is the customer in our system? It's our children. It's the kindergartner, entering kindergarten, that's looking at the next 13 plus years of his or her life on what is this system of education going to provide for me. Let's take a look at the, that kindergartner in the top income quartile. So let's take a look at, from the customer's perspective, these are kids that are born in the top 25% of family, families that, own, that earn in the top 25% in our country. If we start with 100 of those kids in kindergarten and follow them, <clears throat> this is a national average, we'll see that 92 of those kindergartners will actually graduate high school. 
If we keep following those 92, we'll see that 81 of those students will attempt college, and by age 25, 77 of them will ultimately earn a college degree, BA, BSc. But by age 25, 77 of them. That's 77% success rate. Puts us in the very top of the world. Comparable to systems like Singapore and Korea, um, it's a very efficient system. But they're not the only customer of our system. We have to go one step forward, and now let's look at the bottom income quartile. These are students that are born to families that earn in the bottom 25% of income earners in our country. If we start with 100 of those kids in kindergarten and track them all the way through, we will find that 71 of those kids, on average nationwide, will graduate high school. Of those 71, if we kept following them, only 41 of those students will actually attempt college. And then by age 25, if we kept following those 41, only nine of them will ultimately earn a college degree in 2011 or beyond. A 9% success rate. If you're born in a poor zip code in this country, odds are 91% of you will not make it out. The American dream is dead. Instead of being the great equalizer for this segment of our population, it's absolutely doing nothing. The question is why? Daniel Pink, in his book, uh, A Whole New Mind, talks about the shift in society as we've moved over time. In the 18th century, we started with what was called the agricultural age, the primary occupation being farmers. If we moved into the 19th century, we moved into the industrial age, and the primary occupation was factory workers. As we moved into the information age, again in the 20th century, towards the latter part of the 20th century, the primary worker is knowledge. The primary occupation is knowledge worker. We're now in a new age, barely 11 years into it, called the conceptual age, according to Daniel Pink. And the primary occupation, primary skill sets in this conceptual age will be creators and empathizers. Jobs that require a high degree of creativity, jobs that require a high degree of empathy. Why? Because those two skill sets, creativity and empathy, aren't easily outsourced or automated. If you think about it, if you've ever uh, had a frustrating uh, experience with a uh, call center that is being staffed from overseas, and I may be, be uh, redundant in saying frustrating overseas call center experience, and you're trying to explain to them a very simple problem you have, and they're reading from a script, and you're like, no, no, no I understand, I just need to, no, no, I'm sorry, sir, I, I heard the script, but I just need, I'm sorry, sir, and you get frustrated. Why? Because the reason that job was able to be outsourced and the reason it's so frustrating to you is there's just little to no empathy with your problem and there's little to, to, to no creativity in helping you solve the problem. It's just a, a, rote, a, me- a mechanized set of rules and algorithms that they try to follow and implement for a basic set of problems. Here's the reality. Our education system was designed sometime between the agricultural and industrial age. When the primary two occupations of our society, when we built our education system, was farmers and factory workers. How many of you have seen a lot of job want ads for farmers and factory workers lately? It's not, it's not a big profession. And yet, we've designed a system of education, a batch manufacturing way of grouping kids by age, moving them through a printed curriculum when there's a finite amount of knowledge to prepare them for a, few, a handful of occupations in a very different age than we live in. What makes this even more challenging is this this current age that we're in. The speed and acceleration of change in the most recent time frame, even the last, even in this century we're in, the 11 years from 2000, just the last 11 or 15 years, the pace of change as it relates to our needs, our desires, our preferences has been phenomenal, unlike any other age before it. Let me explain in a very crude but hopefully simple example of this new society that we're living, even in the past 10 to 15 years. The coffee maker on the left, let's call it coffee maker 1.0, is, uh, is my coffee maker. Uh, my wife and I got it as a wedding gift in 1996. I say was because up until recently, very recently, it was my coffee maker. Coffee maker 1.0 was great. I mean, it made a great cup of coffee. Uh, we got rid of Coffee Maker 1.0, not because it stopped working, not because it wasn't functional, not because it wasn't making a, a great cup of coffee, 
But something happened recently to us. We redid our kitchen. The equivalent of uh, the reverse of winning the lottery, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and nonetheless, uh, several checks later, the kitchen was redone, and we had friends over, and they were commenting how nice and modern our kitchen looked. And then their eyes would scan across the room and the stainless steel appliances and the countertops, and they would see Coffee Maker 1.0. And their eyes would pause in Coffee Maker 1.0 and say, that's your old coffee maker, isn't it? Say, so, yeah, I don't think it fits. So for my most recent birthday, my wife bought me Coffee Maker 2.0. There's been a few improvements in the coffee-making industry. Coffee Maker 2.0, as you can see, is stainless steel to match the stainless steel appliances of modern kitchens. Coffee Maker 2.0 has a number of buttons on the front of it that Coffee Maker 1.0 never had. It has an alarm mode that'll actually, you can preset and brew the coffee for you so that it's ready and waiting when you wake up. The designers of Coffee Maker 2.0 probably realized that people that use their products are not likely morning people and could use a little extra help. It actually has two alarm modes, one for the weekdays and one for the weekends when perhaps you want to wake up a little bit later. <laughs> Inside Coffee Maker 2.0, if I open the top, you would see a built-in water filter. I'm not sure why you need to filter water when it's boiling, but nonetheless, it creates a level of transcendence and significance in the buyer's life. <laughs> Coffee Maker 2.0, if, uh, if I looked at the instruction booklet for Coffee Maker 1.0, it's, it's basically one page. And it basically says, put the beans in here, put the water in here, don't play with the cord near the water, and you're good. <laughs> Coffee Maker 2.0 is, is almost like a binder. There's 47 different languages. In addition, there's, all, there's a quite a dissertation on the renewable materials that went into the, the coffee maker, the renewable sources of material, limiting the carbon footprint, and how you can buy your beans from Rwanda and, and, and help villages develop. <clears throat> it's almost like therapy, reading the instruction booklet for Coffee Maker 2.0. You socially feel very good about yourself having bought this coffee maker. Here's the reality. If I went into the store looking for Coffee Maker 1.0, I could not find it. It does not exist. If I did go into the store, if I went into Target and I looked in the Coffee Maker, I would see 20, 25 different coffee makers who all do the same thing. No difference in utility. None. But the reality is Coffee Maker 2.0, the designers, the makers of Coffee Maker 2.0, realize that they still have to have the technical skills of how to brew coffee. They still need the technical skills of 1.0. But in addition to 1.0, what 1.0 never had to figure out, but 2.0 does, is things like design and aesthetic and emotion and how does this fit. And they recognize that, you know, this, this machine will be used 20 minutes of the day, of every day, but the other 23 hours and 40 minutes, it's a showpiece. It's trying to make a statement. So they have to understand the customer's buying preferences and lifestyles. One final point on this. Coffee Maker 1.0, $30 back in 1996. Coffee Maker 2.0, $100. Even if you take into account inflation, that's incredible premium that's being, being, being um, captured, if you will, economically speaking, on a set of skills that were not required just 15 years ago. We live in a society that demands Coffee Maker 2.0. But our education system is 1.0. Picture on the left, classroom in the 1920s. Picture on the right, 2010 classroom. What's the difference? Not. There isn't. We're still batching kids by age. We're still moving them through a printed curriculum. We still have a one-to-many relationship between teacher and student. We still use crude end-of-the-year assessments on whether they've learned. We still have a batch manufacturing way of educating ch kids that really hasn't changed in the last hundred years. Let's compare and contrast how Education 1.0, which is our, what I'm calling our classrooms of today, meets the needs of Society 2.0, which is what I'm calling our society that we live in today. In Education 1.0, content is king. Think about all the attention and effort that's spent on trying to figure out um, What's the right textbook? What's the right curriculum? 
And once they figure that out, nobody really concerns themselves about the actual experience with the material. But in Society 2.0, experience is king. Content is easy. It's at our fingertips. It's a couple of keystrokes away. Experience is what matters. In Education 1.0 in our schools today, content plus experience is uniform. It doesn't matter that you sit in the third row of a fifth grade class and you're a fourth generation American. And another child sits in the second row and is a brand new immigrant that's struggling with English. Their content and their experience in our classrooms today is largely uniform. We're not changing the experience for them. Today, content and experience varies widely. You ever gone to a Starbucks where there's a number of people in front of you and you start listening what they order and you're amazed that no two people are ordering exactly the same thing? In our schools today, collaboration is cheating. Pencils down, eyes on your paper. But the way, collaboration is the way we work today. Could you imagine working on a project where you couldn't collaborate, where you couldn't get input from other people? Can I borrow that? Are you, do you have a good file list? Do you have any references on this? And... In Education 1.4, poor performance is penalized. You get an F. It's the end point that counts. Did you pass the test? Did you, did you get promoted or graduated? In our society, good performance is rewarded. We level set the drive improvement from wherever your starting point is. The video game designers um, have emerged into a multi-billion dollar industry because they get this point. See, kids can be at tremendously different levels when they play a game. But what the video gamers have realized is when that kid, so when a kid that doesn't have very good capacity compared to another kid is playing that same game, when the game ends, they immediately ask, do you want to play again? And do you want to start right where you left off or do you want to go all the way back to zero? And as you play, the more and more you play, you get more points, you get more credits, you get more whatever, recognition, high score, your name. It's constantly incentivized. You ever seen it? You ever watched a kid play a video game? Is any kid ever content with just level one? They all want to master the game. There's elements of the way they're designing games that we can, we can bring into our education. In our classrooms today, the student is the receiver of information and the teacher is the expert. But in our society, those roles are interchangeable. When are you the student? When are you the teacher? In fact, the teacher role in society in many of our professions is a facilitator of learning. The critical skills in our schools today are memorization, focus analysis, and writing. <clears throat> the critical skills of our society that demand are collaboration, multitasking, holistic thinking, articulation, and expression. I remember when I was in college a number of years ago, and one of the graduate courses, you would, you would analyze these problems, you know, make versus buy, in-house versus outsource, uh, outsource um, rent versus own, right? And so you'd analyze, and you'd have two binary outcomes, and you'd hold one set of variables constant, and then you'd analyze these set of variables, figure out the bottom line, then you'd hold these set of variables constant and analyze this to figure out the bottom line. <clears throat> and there was textbooks on this and a lot of, um, we spent a lot of course time and coursework and projects and exam questions on this. I will tell you, in uh, the last 18 years or so, I've never had a problem like that where I could solve it down into two binary outcomes and hold a set of variables constant. All of the problems that I've worked on are multivariate. All of them seem, I do this, this happens, and I do this, and this happens, and I do this. And I, so it's iterative and reiterative and iterative. All of those skill sets that I spent time on, it's not, a, it's not just about how do we analyze and break all the different component pieces. It's how do we pull it together into a big picture. There's also an emphasis today on articulation and expression. It's not just solving the problem. It's getting people to understand, A, the problem you're trying to solve, and B, how this solution fits this problem. Take a look at our recent healthcare debate. How many people actually understood the problem that's trying to be solved? How many people actually understood how the solution being proposed actually solved that problem? There's a lack of capacity that we currently have that we're not teaching the next generation to do. Our Society 2.0 is requiring a whole different set of skills. I talked about creativity and empathy. The picture on the right. Um, what's the fastest growing profession in the U.S. right now? It's nurses. If you've got friends that are in nursing school right now, they're pretty much guaranteed a job. <clears throat> Why? You can't outsource those. It requires a high degree of empathy, personal touch, high contact. The picture on the left is a bridge in South Carolina. Take a look at that bridge. That is doing more than just connecting two pieces of land together. Schools, like at the school in um, higher ed institutions, are actually starting to catch on to this trend. Uh, Georgia Tech, um, I live in Atlanta requires all of their freshman engineers 
doesn't matter what, whether they're mechanical, civil, electrical, to pair their major, engineering major, with a minor. And one of those minors has to be something completely different. It could be art, it could be molecular biology, it could be psychology. And the point is they want to, they want to fuse together divergent thinking. And they want to because what they realize is when, when these students graduate, don't get me wrong, they're still going to need to know how to technically build a bridge. You can't be an engineer without that skill set. But what they realize now is that skill set is no longer, it's necessary, but it's no longer sufficient. What we require of engineers today is in addition to building that bridge, they need to think about design. How does the bridge fit into the landscape of the city? What renewable materials will you use? How will you engage the community to be part of it? How will you think about traffic patterns? A whole set of skills and abilities that we didn't recently require, but now do. So this is when in my personal journey I came to the question, how do I design a solution that can scale across the country? I've understood the historical greatness. I understood what made it great and how it fell from that greatness. But the reality is, and where I start, why, the reason I started on this path was I realized the current attempts in public education were not scalable. You've heard this one, choice, vouchers. Give, give parents choice. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for parent choice. I'm all for creating as many options as possible. But we can't scale this solution. Even though it, it's effective in certain pockets, it's not something. Because how do you create enough vouchers? How do you create enough supply of the demand that, that there is? How do you convince operators and school providers to come into a place like urban downtown Detroit? Choice alone cannot scale across this country. Money, you've heard this argument or this solution. We need more money in public education. That's the problem. We're underfunded. Our schools are underfunded. Well, the reality is in the current economic climate and the foreseeable economic future, more money is not going to be an option for our public schools. In times and periods when we've had more money, California in the 90s and Tennessee as well, uh, spent over a billion dollars lowering class size. They did some research at the end of the four years. They analyzed those students in those lower class size, and they found absolutely no difference in academic improvement, zero. We need to spend our money that we have better. I'm not saying that more money wouldn't be helpful, but it's not an economic reality that we live in, and even if it was, it's not something that we can both A, scale, and B, sustain. The last one, human capital, and this is the most current, probably, solution you've been hearing. We need an effective teacher in every class, and I 100% agree. The research shows that if a child has an effective teacher four years in a row, it totally eliminates the achievement gap. How do you scale that, though, across 3.5 million children? The research shows that if you have an effective teacher four years in a row, you will eliminate the achievement gap in America. If a student does, the achievement gap between they, minority kids, kids of poverty and color, will, will, will perform at the same levels of, of their counterparts. But how do you scale a human capital? Imagine going to a Fortune 100 company. Imagine going to GE and saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to create 3.5 million leaders around the country. They're going to be in urban areas, suburban, rural, big towns, small towns. We're going to give them 25 people every year. But it's going to be a different 25 every year. And we want them to get all 25 across the same goal line every year. And we want you to do this every single year, whether you have new leaders or old leaders. GE would scratch his head and says, I don't, I don't, you know, we're, we're probably one of the most powerful human capital intensive companies. Our leadership development programs are world renowned. I can't solve that problem. And I think what all of these attempts have done, choice, money, human capital, I could name others, all of these education solutions have failed. And they failed because of this. They failed because they've been trying to fix the status quo of education. How do we make that batch manufacturing one-size-fits-all method and mode of education better? When the reality is the problem with public education is it's a design problem. What do I mean by that? I mean that the very delivery of education, the way that education is delivered to our children, needs to be completely redesigned. This batch manufacturing way of educating kids, one-size-fits-all needs to be completely blown up. The truth of the matter is we live in a digital world and yet our kids are sitting in analog environments learning. iTunes has changed the way that we listen to music. Amazon's changed the way that we buy books. eBay, the way we buy and sell goods. Facebook, the way we connect with friends. Google, the way we search for information. Customization has transformed almost every aspect of our society except 
the classroom. And here's the interesting thing. We're losing ground, as you've probably read, to our international counterparts and when it comes to public education. But all of these companies that I listed up there, they're American companies. They were founded and created here. What we lead the world in, one of the things we lead the world in, is technology that customizes content and experience for the user. Is there any doubt that if, we can, if iTunes, if Apple can figure out with iTunes Genius what music selection you like, or Amazon can, can recommend books to you that fit your, suit, your preferences and buying patterns, and Google can get smarter on what, what search terms you typically access, then can we not use those same algorithms to figure out how kids learn best and apply it to them? Is that not something we can begin to lead the world in again? So now you start to see and, and get a sense of where I think this is going. It's a design problem, so we have to design a solution, redesign education around customization, that education 2.0, a system of education that meets the needs of our, the society 2.0 that we live in, is customized. Where I began to see an education solution that was both sustainable and has had the potential to scale was online learning. When I looked at the data, when I looked at these online schools and online courses, the longer kids took these online courses, the better they did because the learning was customized to their needs, their preferences, their learning styles, their motivation. Gave them instantaneous feedback. It's like having your own personal teacher. But there was a criticism that, I, that I, would, I would pose to the online industry, and it's this. For all of your success and all of your phenomenal growth, it's happening on the edges and on the fringes. You see, the majority of your growth is happening with homeschool kids, where there isn't a better option, or it's better than the option that they currently have. Or it's happening with kids that, who are taking a supplemental course, like AP Spanish online because their high school doesn't offer it. When the majority of kids are still living, 95, 98% of our kids are still learning in our bricks and mortar school. What if we took that online learning and brought it into a bricks and mortar school? Created a hybrid environment where every student would get two teachers, a physical teacher and a virtual teacher. Every student would get a netbook. On that netbook would be the curriculum loaded. And what you'd say to that teacher or two teachers is you don't have to lesson plan. The lessons are already loaded. We're going to start every child based on where they left off. We're going to develop an individual learning plan for each child based on where they are in the curriculum. Kids that are smart and gifted and are moving ahead, don't bore them through lesson one, two, three, four. If they're ready for lesson five, let's move into lesson five. Kids that need a few more days on lesson one, let's give them a few more days on lesson one. Why are we, why are we pushing past them? You don't need the lesson plan because they're loaded on the curriculum. You don't need to figure out what to teach next because the algorithm... The, the learning management system progresses each child at their pace. You don't need to test necessarily because that's, the assessments are built into their learning. You're getting feedback to determine whether they move ahead or, behind or backwards in the curriculum. And you don't need to grade because that's also built in. Now, you can supplement that, obviously, with additional projects and additional tests and additional assessments. But the bulk of that can be, is, in, is in this engine, this online engine. And then the teacher says, well, if I don't have the lesson plan and I don't have to figure out what to teach next, and I don't have to test and I grade, that's like 90% of what do I do? What I do. So what do I do? Now you begin to change the role of the teacher from a master lecturer, content provider, to a facilitator of learning, to a tutor, a mentor, a coach, working in smaller groups. And you're freeing up that teacher to make more connections, physical in-person connections with the student. Because the reality is, the thing a computer will never do is replicate the magic that happens between a student and a physical teacher in, in real time. And most teachers that I've talked to, they got into the teaching profession not so that they could prepare these master lessons and deliver them to 30 kids at a time, but because of sometime early in their career, they got a chance to mentor a young child. And they saw that spark go off. And then they mentored another child, and they saw that spark go off in a different way. And they fell in love with that. This is freeing them up to get back to the base art of their skill and their craft. In this hybrid school, we would ask three questions of every student. In fact, we'd ask it on the first day of school, and we probably, and not probably, we're going to ask it every two weeks. Where are they at right now? Where are we trying to get them to? 
And how do we get them there? I'm going to compare and contrast how a bricks-and-mortar traditional school answers these questions compared to how my hybrid model, which we're hoping to launch nationally this year, will do that. You see, most bricks-and-mortar schools won't even ask that first question, where are they at on the first day of school? But to create that baseline, if they did, they'd say, well, they're in the ninth grade, algebra. They're 14 years old. They'd answer it by greater age. But the reality is, no, if we gave them a test, what would that answer be? If we gave them an assessment on the first day of class, we'd see that this child in this particular class has really solid algebra skills. In fact, they're starting to build geometry. They're way ahead of the ninth grade curriculum. They're actually capacity-wise ready for the 10th grade. Where are we trying to get them to? Well, in a bricks-and-mortar way, a traditional school, we'd say, well, we're just trying to work them through the, to get them ready for 10th grade. But I'm saying they're already ready for 10th grade on the first day of class. The last question, how do we get them there? The bricks-and-mortar school says, oh, we just use our standard-approved ninth-grade algebra textbook. In a hybrid model, you change the answers. You say, if the, if the child is ready to be promoted, promote them. Assess them to make sure that they are. But don't bore them sitting them through an entire ninth-grade curriculum of algebra that they already have mastered. How do you do that? You give them an individualized learning plan. It'll involve some work with the 10th grade, some self-study on the computer. But the point is, Break up the batch manufacturing way. Let's take another student. Student number uh, 19, same questions. Where are they at? Where are we trying to get them to? How do we get them there? First question, first, first answer, in our hybrid model, bricks and mortar would say they're in ninth grade, but our hybrid model would say, no, we did an assessment. They're actually at a sixth grade level, functionally speaking. This is part of the problem in our, in our public, urban public schools. These kids are in the ninth grade, but they're really operating at a fifth grade level. But the curriculum, the textbook, is still going on in the ninth grade, leaving them behind. No wonder they're dropping out. What we'd say is don't promote them to the 10th. That's not our goal for this year is to promote them to the 10th grade. We're not going to use a standard curriculum. We've got to rebuild and remediate those skills that they didn't get those last few years. We've got to build a foundation for algebra before we can teach them algebra. How do we do that? In a hybrid model, you can do that with an individualized learning plan. They'll do some small group math intervention. They'll work individually with the teacher. Now, if we did this for every student in the class, which we will, what you begin to do is you begin to group kids. Every, ki- every day a kid has a quick 60-second online assessment. You score them on the left, 0 to 65, 66 to 80, 80 to 100. In addition to that, you're using the teacher's observations, professional judgment, their own assessments to say, okay, they may have just fil- clicked on the computer and got a high score, but did they really understand the concept? Are they mastering the concept, partial mastery or non-mastery? Kids that have a high score and show mastery, we'll group them together, the bottom right, green. Kids that are struggling, non-mastery, low score, we'll group them together. We'll begin to segment and differentiate the batch, the one-size-fits-all, based on where kids are. The question is, now that you do that, what do you do? Now you can begin to differentiate instruction. Now you have a sense of where kids are, educationally speaking. You have the data. And now you differentiate instruction by giving them different modes. That first group... So it's a, it's a 50-minute class. The first half of the class, group one, they're going to spend time with a physical teacher because they're way behind and they're going to need that. Halfway through the class, they'll flip. And maybe they'll spend some time with a virtual teacher. Maybe they'll do some scroll group. Group two up there at the top, they'll spend some time with a virtual teacher. Group three, they'll do a live lesson on the computer. Group four, they'll do individual work on the computer. Again, we're giving different modes of instruction for groups of students. Why different modes? Because no kid learns just one way. And it'll vary. Some subjects are better in small groups. Some subjects are better individually. Some are better as a large group. By differentiating the modes of instruction, what you're doing is you're allowing an ability to customize education. You begin, the algorithm is to say, hey, this content coupled with this type of mode of instruction for these kinds of students works really well. And this kind and this kind and this kind works really well. And you get smarter and smarter on how you teach. Let me recap. I believe we have a design problem in education. And so we have to redesign the very delivery of education. And that redesign, today, students fit the needs of school. Tomorrow, in our hybrid schools of the future, school will fit the needs of students. Today, time is the constant and learning is the variable. In our hybrid schools of tomorrow, learning will be the constant and time will be the variable. And most importantly, a hybrid model can change the trajectory of our nation. I fundamentally believe this, that if we can customize education, 
for each individual student, then we finally have a way of breaking free from the gravitational pull that some kids make it out of our system and some kids don't. And the kids that don't are disproportionately poor and disproportionately minority. That's not the country that we're a part of. And I believe that this solution can be sustainable and scalable within our country. Now I'd be remiss if I ended here. I have one more slide. So I said that I've gone on this journey and in designing and developing this hybrid solution, I wanted something that would scale and be sustainable. And I got to the point where understanding the historical greatness, its fall from greatness, questioning hard where there was sustainability and scalability, and designing a solution, redesigning education, the delivery of education. But I say this, that, that for those of you that are asking the same question that I asked myself this past year is, you know, why am I here? What am I to do? Am I, am I making, am I having the greatest good for the common good? And how difficult that question is. When you stumble on what you think, and you never know for sure, but if you stumble on what you think may be the path that God wants you to go, there's one more step you've got to take, and that's vision. God's created us, and each of us, a capacity to vision, to picture, however blurry, however fuzzy, what that future may look like if it's realized. And again, I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea. I may be totally wrong on all of this. But the point is you have to create some kind of visual picture because when you get engaged in the work and the work is going to be hard and the reform is going to be difficult and you're going to, fail, you're going to see far more failure than you'll ever see success, and you'll have far more critics than you'll ever have advocates. There's some picture that you say, it's not this that I'm working for. It's that. This picture was created by a researcher who analyzed uh, the number of people on Facebook last year and their connectivity on Facebook. So the lighted areas of the map show... Um, every person on Facebook. And the more intense lit up areas are where there's more Facebook users. So obviously the U.S. and particularly uh, the eastern half of the U.S. and then Western Europe. And the streams of light between places is what he did was he scraped where every time there was a Facebook user, wherever their friends were located, geographically located, where they lived, he connected those with, with light rays. And so this is the connectivity that's happening in our world. And that's at 500 million users. And just like other, social, uh, other innovations in technology, from the radio to the TV to the personal computer to the cell phone, there's an exponential, weight, exponential rate at which these grow, the adoption of these new technologies grow, uh, so that at, at some point in time in history it becomes ubiquitous almost. It's hard to find a country now and uh, even a village without a radio or TV, for example, and cell phones are becoming the same way. Imagine what this map looks like for a second if we were to vision it in a few years from now, when it's not 500 million people, but it's a billion. It's not hard to see that at some point in our lifetime, there'll probably be 3 billion people or more connected on the same platform that's, that's run on the Internet. We talk about six degrees of separation. I actually think it's, in our lifetime, that may half or almost half. What happens when that degree of connectivity is coupled with creativity and productivity. The light is probably an, an interesting analogy. We won't see that full realization in this world, and I know that. But uh, in Scripture, in Revelation, at the end, it talks about a final city. It provides this image of what that may look like. And it says that in that final city, you won't need a sun by day or a moon by night because the city will be lit up by the glory of God. And what is the glory of God but we, his children, bearing and reflecting that image fully back to him. And we can't do that without an education system that enables that. But for the first time in my life, I feel like it's possible. And that's why I believe that this is the future of education. And that's why I believe this future is inevitable. Thank you.
we have time. We have time for perhaps one or two questions. If you have a question, could you go to one of the microphones that are on the, and I'll recognize you, and we'll, yes, please go ahead. You said that creativity and empathy are going to be crucial skills, and I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about how the hybrid model with online learning can make space for facilitating those very skills. Yeah, so um, several. The reason I feel so passionate about a hybrid versus pure online, pure online would be far cheaper, right? Because you don't have to build buildings, you don't have to pay for physical bodies. But I believe there's a powerful element when humans interact in person together. And so creating some of that customization ability within the hybrid model. So we will, uh, we will do classes um, like art and music and history. And some of those classes, can, candidly, will, will feel more like a traditional class where they'll learn musical instruments. And, but then what they'll also have ability to do now in a hybrid environment is after playing a musical piece, they can sit at their computer and compose a piece or look at other artists that have, that have been in that genre. We can begin to expand. And then what they can do as they're engaging what they've physically done with the wealth of information at their fingertips is turn to their friends and say, check out this piece by Mozart. It's unbelievable. And so what we're doing is we're creating too much of our classrooms today aren't creating enough creativity and empathy because the students are all facing forward in single front row lines waiting for the teacher to ask them a question or to respond. What we want to do is to have more interactions across between each other, other kids in other countries. And what that will do is, I just, I'm just a firm believer, if you create that space, creativity and empathy will fall. Go ahead. Thank you so much for sharing today. My question is, with the rate that technology is advancing, um, what comes after this step? After the hybrid education model, how soon do you think the next education model would be needed, and what would that look like? Wow. The future, future. Uh, I'm going to have to come back next January and uh, figure that one out. Um, honestly, I think, I think what will happen uh, if I had to look uh, really well into a crystal ball, what I would say is um, there's going to be a democratization of public education, meaning right now we're thinking in terms of hybrid and our bricks and mortar schools, but if there is great content, great teachers around the world, if you're going to learn about Pick a country, Spain. Why wouldn't I have someone from Spain teaching me about that? And vice versa. Why can't we have some of our teachers produce content? And so what I think you'll see is an is, is a open marketplace where content and students and curriculum and assessments are shared across, uh, across systems. Because if we see a system that's, that's doing a, uh, a really great way of how to teach kids how to draw, how to think, how to, how to add fractions, we should be able to source that from anywhere in the world. And so in many ways, I think this is going to level the playing field because you now, you could be a kid in Kigali, Rwanda, and um, you know, have access to the best math, science, and, and whatever teachers, wherever they are in the world. Yeah. Um, this is a very exciting vision, uh, so thank you for bringing that. Um, but considering that kids are kids, how do you design the system to protect those who are further behind from being ridiculed by those who are further ahead. Yeah, so part of the reason those kids are, are ridiculed uh, for being further behind is the curriculum and the teacher keeps moving without them. In a hybrid model, I mean, I, I showed in that, that one map, red, yellow, green, the reality is we would, we would change the color scheme. We'd We'd probably call them like lions and bears and tigers. The point is, you, you, if, you have a group of, if you have a struggling child, there are other struggling kids probably on that same issue. When you group them together, they have a sense of identity and solidarity. And you're not labeling them you're struggling. You're just, you're just needing more time to master this. So now we have a way to differentiate instruction where the teacher can now spend some time with those kids and say, here's, here's why you're having trouble adding fractions. I'm going to show you on the blackboard. I'm going to show you on your computer. I'm going to show you on this piece of paper. And they begin to help each other. And meanwhile, she can keep... The, she, most good teachers, even mediocre teachers, know who their struggling kids are. The problem they have is, how do I go help those kids and still keep the plate spinning over here? In this hybrid model, I think you can do that. Them from each other. That's the thing. That's what I'm asking. In terms of them, in, in terms of them bothering each other or bugging each other, or just, you know, what it, does it address that? 
I, I, think, I think it has to do with tapping into their intrinsic motivation to learn. They're bugging each other because they're bored. They're bugging each other because they're way behind. And um, you can take two kids. Um, it's like if I've, got, I've got three small kids. And uh, my eight-year-old, who's my oldest, um, when he has another friend over, and if they're playing like an online game, and let's say it's an educational game, they act the same way as if it was a, a regular video game because it's engaging. What's really cool is his friend comes over, he's never played the game. And he says, okay, here, let me show you how to play the game. So he gives his friend, my, my son's friend has, has the remote, and he's, he's playing the game. He goes, okay, when you get to level one, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. And when you get to level two, watch out, watch out. But now, now that he's doing that in the, constant, in the concept of a math game for second graders, he's like, okay, okay, when you get to double-digit addition, and you're subtracting the decimal. Like he's teaching him math. It's this peer-to-peer learning that happens. They're at totally different levels. Schools would kill for that kind of peer-to-peer collaboration. And yet the way that if we just simply redesign the way that education is delivered, I think those kids will stop making fun of each other and begin to help each other because there's this reward system, incentive system, that rewards good performance. I'm, I'm sorry. We had offside questions as well that I didn't get to. I apologize for that. If you'd like to speak to Mr. George um, after the presentation, he'll be in the West Lobby to greet members of the audience. Please join me in thanking him once again. Thank